I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors. It's Monday, February 19th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 150 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thank you for joining us for another conversation about uh, creativity, about music. Today's a good one. Today's a really good one. Today on the show, vocalist, composer, Theo Blackman. Theo's instrument, his voice. Uh, I think it's all too uncommon to hear people who perform with the clarity that Theo does. And uh, I was really happy to have him over. Today on the show, Theo Blackman. I met Theo briefly many years ago at the Stone when he was uh, booking a month there. And I knew his name and uh, had some idea of, of who he was and what he was up to. But the, the few performances of his that I observed that month, uh, I was really knocked out by. As I mentioned a second ago, Theo has a real purity to his voice. Uh, it's just he really, he projects and you can hear uh, the, the clarity, just it comes through. There's, there's no doubt about what his intentions are when, when he's delivering. And those are the kind of people I like to talk to. Um, again, you know, when we met years ago, it was very brief, uh, but I, I just, he's always sort of been somewhere in my mind as, as, you know, someone who I, I, I have a great admiration for Theo. Uh, this conversation today was really the first time we ever talked and it was an utter delight. Uh, this is really a good conversation today. You guys are in for a treat. I, I should warn you that, um, or I should have warned Theo, uh, there's, there's a, one or two strange moments in this conversation where, I, I, I think I put Theo in the role of therapist for me, uh, and I don't know that that was the right thing to do. So, so sorry about that. Um, I hope it's entertaining. Theo has a new record out on ECM. It's called Elegy. Uh, features his band with John Hollenbeck, Chris Tardini, Shy Maestro, Ben Monder. Um, you could do a lot worse than getting those guys in your band and, you know, like everything on ECM, like everything in Theo's catalog. Uh, it's pretty exceptional. And I'll just say it once more. I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Theo. And if you know, you're know you not already familiar with him uh, and what his work is, check it out. Um, go to theobleckman.com. That's Blackman with two N's at the end. B-L-E-K-M-A-N-N. Theobleckman.com. He stays busy with a lot of stuff, even outside of music. Uh, he just did like an ice skating show at National Sawdust. Um, and, and just to, to clear one thing up about the conversation, at the start of the conversation, we um, are talking about Joan Rivers a good bit. And if it's not clear to you, uh, I, I think we made it pretty clear. Uh, the reason for that is Joan Rivers was someone that Theo and his husband were close to. And in fact, she officiated their wedding. So that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, and Joan Rivers, you know, Shout out to Joan. If you're not already uh, a fan of Joan Rivers, you should probably fix that pretty quickly. Go to theobleckman.com. If you're enjoying this show and you want to you wanna show some appreciation, uh, subscribe to it, 
rate it, review it in iTunes. All of that helps. Um, and if you want to go a little further, maybe throw in a few bucks uh, at the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash 5049podcast. This is a listener-supported show. So any little bit that you'd like to throw in would be helpful. That's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Theo Blackman. Out in the garden, there's half of a heaven, and we're only bluffing. We're not ones for busting through walls, but they told us unless we can prove that we're doing it, we can't have it all. Where they can be. It's pretty bad. I mean, I grew up, my stepfather was a writer, uh-huh. and he had, like, I just remember his workspace was always piles of papers and, and shit and books, and I'm like, oh, that's what a workspace is. It's a disorganized mess. Well, that's, I read a thing in the Times that said that a, that a, a certain amount of chaos is good for creativity or something. I, I I agree with that, and my wife is always telling me, she's like, you know, do you ever think that maybe your music could have more clarity, or perhaps your career could be in a place where you'd more like it if you create... <laughs> you were a different person, <laughs> if you were Steve well, Reich. That's the, that's the question I ask myself, is <laughs> if I was a different person, how much better would my life be? <laughs> I think maybe perhaps quite a bit. <laughs> Considering that most people are miserable, that might not be a good choice. But you know, it's funny, because because she's an architect, she has a subscription to Dwell. Uh-huh. Do you ever read Dwell? Uh- at the supermarket, yeah. Okay, so she knows. I read it every issue cover to cover, and I look at these people's homes, and I look at people's like Instagram accounts, and I'm like, everyone's got these really beautiful, sort of well curated, art like existences, and I just live in like garbage, you know. No, this that's, all, a, that's this a facade, not, right? This is not garbage. I'd rather live, you know, in a sort of semi. Not chaos, but this is not chaos. Oh I my mean, God. I just my whole thing, and it always has been my entire life. I like to be surrounded by my things that I care about. And that's always been books, <clears throat> films, and music. Mm-hmm. Films now, especially these days, I'm really spending a lot of time with. But How do you keep films? On DVD? Yeah. Wow. I don't understand people doing the streaming shit. It doesn't work. There's no variety. What do you mean variety? I mean, it, I have accounts to probably three or four different um, streaming services where I, you know, that have wow. movies. And I will... serious. Well, I'll look for like, you know... Ar- well, inarguably, <clears throat> essential films. I said, you know, I haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon in a while. Let me pull that up. Or I haven't seen, you know, um, Apocalypse Now. Like, you know, mm-hmm. universally accept. And they're just, they're not there. I can watch, you know, yeah. the eighth yeah. season of like Real Housewives or something. <laughs> but it's not exactly <laughs> enriching my life. Three of them were at my wedding. Are you serious? FYI. So I have to say, <laughs> I was like, you know, let me, let me read a little bit about Theo oh, before he comes over here. And I saw the thing in the Times about your wedding. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we're here to talk about you and music, but I have to say, Joan Rivers is one of my all-time heroes. Oh my God, she's the best. And she married you and your husband. My husband was very good friends with her for two decades or longer. Oh my goodness. And she was sort of um, uh, his sort of angel. Like She helped him launch his career in a big way, and they were very tight. And then when it came to her wedding, actually before before it was legal, she said, why don't you get married? You know, you come to my house in Connecticut and we'll do it there. And she was all excited. Mm -hmm. And then it got legal and then we did it the way we did it. She was, I didn't really know her 
bef- like I knew her work a little bit sure. and I knew her as that sort of brassy I mean, uh, did you have comedian? an idea of like the full arc of her career or just sort of like... Now I do. Yeah. And when I met her, I realized who she actually is. Yeah. She was amazing. She's one of the celebrities that I met who was talking to me equally. Mm-hmm. Like she was talking to me like we are talking now. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't just talking to Preston, who was her friend and who... They had a history, obviously, but we were having a conversation in the same room with equals mm-hmm. that n- almost never happens with celebrities mm-hmm. and that was number one i was like wow this woman is real and then you know her whole charity and her whole other side that is not that you know bitchy mm-hmm. super funny and um god i wish she was around now yeah I wish she was oh around. that was that would be someone whose perspective i would greatly uh, appreciate she would she, she knew would, how to read men. Yeah, she would cut so hard right yeah. now. She really, <sighs> she really wanted. Like we, now, now that you say that, and I think about some, you know, a lot of things I heard her say. Like she really, there are few people that I would want taking me apart as 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 like as I, I would be afraid for her to do it because it would just <laughs> de- devastate me. <laughs> that might be hell. <laughs> that might be the actual hell. But I mean, one thing that was so cool about her <laughs> was that I think, especially you know, if you if you get to the point of recognition that she did, you know, a worldwide icon. She, I I believe that she was herself the entire time. Yeah. There was a part of her that, I mean, she was so smart and she was, she could, she could see, like she could see and read a person immediately, you know, and she could see bullshit from a mile away. But she was, um, what was I going to say? She was extremely thorough and extremely prepared uh-huh. for a wedding, which I did not expect. Well, did you watch that documentary on her? Yeah. And you see her like filing system of all of her <clears throat> jokes since like the late 50s, early 60s. She started the wedding by saying, "I'm." she had a Bible that she... <laughs> I'm laughing already. <laughs> that she had notes in, which, she, which uh, Melissa gave us after she passed away. Uh, and there are all these post-it notes in there. Yeah. And she said... <laughs> I'm very happy here to uh, unite uh, Pressman and Leo. And she mispronounced her names on purpose. And everybody was like, oh! she was just flown in and she doesn't know what she's doing. And then she, I don't know how she resolved it, but it was a total joke. That's how it started. And the thing was, that was she was prepared, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it was funny and it was incredibly moving at the same time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just jokes and ha ha ha. Because she knew you guys. Yeah. Yeah. By then, I you know met with her a bunch and yeah, it was great. It was yeah, great. it was, it was a lesson in, um, like being the absolute best at any given moment. That was incredible. Right. She was not phoning it in, which she could have. Very easily. Very easily. You know, it was like a, I mean, it was televised, but not real. It was like a small cable channel taped it. Blah blah blah. It was right. She totally prepared. Yeah, for this. Well, you know, it's funny. Like, I no, it's true what you said. I mean, because she, how can I say it? I'm not, I'm not going to try to extrapolate it. Yeah. Right? There's something about good weddings and bad weddings, and <laughs> I, I feel like the good weddings that I've been to, my own included. I'm gonna go ahead and say it was a yeah. good wedding. Um, there is just like. The, the, even when like someone's cracking wise and they're telling like a great joke or a great antidote about one of the people involved, the line between like that 
and just breaking down in like vulnerable tears is all you're just like you're walking that line the whole time yeah so i always cry at good weddings we had the uh, advantage of having you know a gay wedding which doesn't really have to adhere to any rules no wedding gay weddings are the best in my experience i think so too but no wedding has to adhere to any rules really but in gay weddings you can really do whatever you want and we did whatever we wanted and that meant no sit down dinner for you know three four hours where mm -hmm. you wait for your half warm chicken cutlet you know <laughs> oh boring so and you communist. have to talk to the same two people to the right. right and the left you know we didn't do that so there was a lot and it started at midnight and there were all Are these you serious yeah and it was all these weird wonderful um things that kept it fresh and interesting for us and also for, you know for the guests obviously yeah it was fun yeah <laughs> it's funny talking to you I, i you know i remember i met you years ago when you were curating the stone i didn't recall i, I guess i read that you were from germany mm -hmm. but i don't i'm just now hearing the accent yeah i mean i can make it thicker if you want no that's okay nein nein muss nicht sein um, Wait, where in Germany are you from? <laughs> I grew up, um, I was born in Dortmund, which is sort of the Detroit of Germany. It's an ancient city. Dortmund is not, no, it's not, I wouldn't say no? ancient. No, it's a coal mining town. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's near Cologne. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It's kind of, I hate to say ugly, but it is. Yeah, that's okay. Sorry, everybody in Dortmund. Um, and I grew up in the countryside between Dortmund and Münster, mm -hmm. which is sort of the flat... Um, A rural area there in a little town mm -hmm. just a boring little cow town but w when you say dortmund's like the detroit it's it's it was once a thriving economy that is now collapsed yeah or? it's uh, well when i was a kid it collapsed and then it uh started with um technology and tech university and all that there's a huge university there now which mm -hmm. is um sort of desirable and so it's turned itself around a little bit but it's still doesn't have a lot of city appeal it's not munich or hamburg or berlin or mm -hmm. any of that you know it's just a functional shopping city right what was the economy there that once sustained it and then collapsed well it was coal mining coal mining oh yeah. God, you meant that literally i thought yeah, that was yeah, yeah. like a metaphor <laughs> no coal mining when i was a kid there were coal mines and and coal mines collapsed and coal miners got trapped and the whole coal mining disaster were your thing. parents in that business no no i had an uncle who was going uh -huh. under or whatever they call it here <laughs> wait he was He was in the mine. Wow. Yeah. That's like the scariest job in the world. I know. It's weird. You didn't think anything of it because so many people did sure. it. Sure. But it is weird to go into the earth and excavate coal and then come out completely covered in coal. Ugh. Uh, also knowing there's a very good chance you're not going to come back out. I mean, as far as workplace hazards go. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, if you get out or not, you are being affected by it because of the you know fumes and the mm -hmm. coal that you... Uh, get through your skin mm. i would see my uncle come home sometimes and he was completely black <laughs> yeah this is weird yeah i remember my friend telling me he had a dad that uh worked in the steel mills in um in indiana inside of gary mm -hmm. and he said he remembers one morning as he was getting ready to leave for school his father had just come home from work was sitting at the table black covered in black you know and drinking a beer at seven o'clock in the morning And he said, what are, you, what are you doing? Why are you drinking a beer at seven o'clock in the morning? And he said, someday you'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they were, they were going in like night shifts and 
yeah. day shifts. It didn't make any difference because you were in the dark anyway. But when you come from, I mean, you can only answer for yourself, but like growing up in a town like that where the local economy and what people do is semi-homogenous, you know, everyone's dads kind of do the same things. Did, did you, was there some part of you that thought like, oh, I guess I'll be a coal miner one day? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I <laughs> never did that ever occur to me. Um, I wanted to be a painter or visual artist as a kid. Yeah. Um, I was very broadly spread. I was, uh, you know, taking piano lessons. I was taking guitar lessons. I was a soloist in a children's choir. Mm. Um, I was roller skating. and Sounds like a good childhood. It was really fun. But I was not going to be a coal miner. Yeah. I was very interested in the arts very early on. I knew that I had a knack for it or... I was drawn to it. I don't know. But drawing, painting was my thing. What do you think, when you think back, what was it that you were experiencing that was so engaging about it, drawing? About drawing was the um, the time, the aspect of time disappearing completely. Yeah. So I don't know if you have experience with that in writing or playing music sometimes. When you, I think it's mostly in composing for me that you are in a space where time has a different feeling mm-hmm. in music playing music sometimes that can happen too but maybe in improvisation more than in you know playing a composition that is on a timeline but um in painting or in drawing i would do that for six or seven hours without even blinking yeah and just be completely lost in it lots of little details and all of it and cho- yeah. choosing the right color and painting over it and all that stuff so that was really sort of where I thought I was going to go until at the age of 18, um, when I was doing some oil painting, I realized that I was going to be by myself for the rest of my life with this. Mm. And that I did not like at all. Right. Right. You need to work with people. <clears throat> yeah. And at that point, I had started singing again. Um, at 18, 19, I started a, a a trio with a guitar player and a clarinet player. Oh, yeah? And um, we were playing sort of standards and some musical show tune kind of stuff. But Age 18? A, yeah. Okay. In in our weird, idiosyncratic, funny arrangements. And um, I loved the collaborative aspect of music making. And, of course, performing, you know, is really fun. Yeah. I enjoy it a lot. Yeah. And then I went back to, you know, painting, and I was like, ugh, I'm so, it's so dry and dreary all by myself. And right. I have to come up with, you know, this painting now for the next week. It was just, I mean, it, it sounds like painting and drawing allowed you to figure out the, um, the satisfaction of creating. Yeah. <clears throat> it yeah. just needed a little tweaking, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was always, I, I was really, I loved drawing when I was little, and I was certain by age six or so that I was going to do something with drawing or be a cartoonist or, or something drawings, you know, specifically. And that was what I always liked about it was that I was alone. Mm-hmm. That to me, it was again, you know, like my, my world, my universe that, you know, right. I could make the things as big or as small as I wanted. Right. Could, you know, that is a, um, I, I, that is a, a, uh, character, I mean, writers are alone. Composers, for the most part, yeah. are alone. So are a lot of classical instrumentalists. You know, the people that practice six hours a day, eight right. hours a day, violin. Yeah, I mean, or, we yeah. are alone, and that's good, you know, for for a certain amount of time. But then there's nothing I enjoy more than being on the road with my colleagues. Yeah. I love that. I love the camaraderie. I love 
the traveling together, of course, you know, granted that you like the people that you're with, sure. which in my, is, is the case in most cases. But, but also, yeah. you know, when it comes to touring, you know, it's not always so fun while it's happening. But when I think back on, you know, things that have happened on the road, one of the best part of touring is navigating the troubles that go along with it. And I'm not even talking about music necessarily. I'm talking about, you know, um, accommodations that aren't so ideal, uh, long stretches of driving where you barely make the gig, you yeah. know? Well, you need to have the right uh, people in your band to deal with those kind of obstacles because they will be there uh-huh. and people that have a sense of humor about it. And You learn a lot. Oh my God. It's so, it can be so fun. It can be so fun. I remember this one tour. We were uh, in England, in Liverpool, which is not a very pretty town. And it was the middle yeah. of the winter. And we ended up sleeping in this dump. Some guy's flat. It was just disgusting. And there was no blankets. And it was really cold. And I remember I woke up at like 6 in the morning. And I looked up and I saw my breath. <laughs> and I looked around. The other guys were starting to wake up. And I remember thinking, I had this moment. I was like, whatever the first words that come out of my mouth are, <laughs> I can either be completely negative and set that tone or say something, you know, else. And <laughs> I looked over at my friend. I go, Jesus Christ, it's hot as balls in here. <laughs> but it was one of those things where it's like you learn, like, you know what? When you're presented with a challenging situation, it's really important to be mindful of, yeah. of how you approach it. I had a very similar situation in Finland where I was on the road with John Holmbeck, the yeah. drummer, and Gary Versace. The, he's uh, amazing. Yeah, he's fantastic. And Gary and I have a, a very uh, silly sense of humor. And we were put in up in a house where we had to make our own beds. And it was sort of like a youth hostel and the Ugh. beds were uncomfortable. And it wasn't, there was no comfort at all. Yeah. And when we made the beds, Gary and I, we just lost it. We got so silly about making these beds. I, don't, I forgot what the thing was that set us off. But John basically just put on his Bose headset and blocked us out because we were unstoppable. <laughs> it was so fun. That's all I remember about this kind of dirty, grimy house that we were in. Yeah. You know, and that's... That's what you need in those situations. Otherwise, it can get super dark. Right. So, did you did you go to school for music? Yeah, I went to uh, Manhattan School. Oh, and then to City College. Yeah. Wait. So you came here like age eighteen? Um, no. After age twenty one, two, one, two, I did. Um, I did two years of conscientious objector service in Germany, which at the time was mandatory. You as as. A German young adult, you yeah. had to serve in the military, yes. Yes. and you could choose to to go in as a conscientious. You had objector. to make a case against serving in the army, so you had to go in front of a panel of sorts, write an essay, and make your case that you cannot, in good conscience, bear arms, which okay. I did. And then they accepted that, and then you have to do two years instead of a year and a half okay. of military service, you have to do two years of conscientious objector service, which in my case was elder service, elder care. For veterans or? For- no, for any, for uh, a social organization that helps, you know, people that are dying or people that can't take care of themselves. I have to imagine that was pretty profound. It's very profound. And when you're young, you have two things going for you. You sort of brush it off as I have so much life to live. And this is, you know, it's not really going to bring me down. But 
it's part of life. You see that that is happening. It's really, really, really great. Did people that you were working with and had gotten to know pass away during your time yes. there? You said yeah. goodbye to people. Yeah, and uh, one person killed himself. There was all kinds of you know ways people went, um, or they were. Uh, I had one woman that I took care of who was uh, who had dementia, and she one day I opened the door and she had stepped into glass, and the entire floor was covered with blood because she didn't even realize she had stepped in blood. And you see that as a you know nineteen year old, twenty year old, and that changes you in a I think in a good way. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it does. It, it makes me, I'm kind of going, I'm just going to shift gears because I'm kind of yeah. going through this thing right now that I'm having a hard time with. Um, and it's with two different people. Uh, one is a, a, a person I know who's trying to get clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, another person I know is, is not doing well and is sick and has decided to not take care of themselves because they've sort of given up. And in talking with these people, it's hard for me to say to them, but you've got so much to live for. There's, you know... And I'm trying. I'm trying to figure that out. I'm trying to navigate that. When, when, when sometimes when you're attempting to comfort people, you're maybe you're maybe being dishonest with them. This friend of mine that's trying to get clean, I, I support their decision to get clean, mm-hmm. obviously. But I also part of this conversation. I was like, well, what do you think is going to happen? You know, your 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 life's still going to suck. You're not yeah. gonna you're not gonna you know play for the Yankees. You're not gonna you know. Do it, you know? It's still gonna. I mean, there's people who have never taken a drink in their life and are legitimately busting their ass and, and barely hanging on. Like it's not gonna be fun. Mm-hmm. And then this other um, person, you know, I they're they're a grown adult and they've had a difficult life and there it seems to be it seems that they're making this decision to to not fight for that life anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a you know, therapist or I have no... I'm putting you in that position. No, I have no smart answers to that. Um, I think the fact that you're giving of yourself and your time is something to live for. Your friendship and your being there with them is something that one could say is something to live for. Yeah. You know, that's all I have as an answer. Um, Because you can't insert purpose into a person that doesn't feel that they have any. Mm Mm-hmm. You can't just say, well, there's so much to live for when they feel there isn't, you know. You can say, well, I think that you have this potential and that potential, and I will, you know, put your nose into it, but you have to, you, they have to see it, obviously, you know. Yeah. <sighs> oh, dear. Yeah. That's heavy. Did you, when you were with these people, had you experienced <clears throat> death in family before that? Had you... You'd already become familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, I, I was an altar boy. Oh, jeez. Uh, oh, dear. No, n- none of the... <laughs> okay. uh, none of the... <laughs> to me, that's like, wait, are you, are you about to no, tell me something no. really heavy? <laughs> no, no, no hashtags here. Okay. <laughs> um, no, no, no. It was actually really fun and easy and uh, lovely, but um, I had to uh, see a lot of funerals. Yeah. My b- grandmother passed away, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a kid, and... You see a lot of open caskets. Death in a small town is much closer than in a big city, I think, right. where people get carted away and then, you know, you lose touch with the process. But in a small town, everybody comes together. Um, and it's, you know, it's part of life in a way that does make it easier or um, easier to deal with, I mm-hmm. think. But it is present. It's part 
it's it's a part of you know the rituals that go on weddings and mm-hmm. uh, baptisms and funerals are are in everybody's life yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so after that is when you moved to new york yes this I, is what like what year uh 89 New York in 1989 was a very colorful place. Yay! <laughs> you moved uptown Manhattan? I, I, my first apartment was in Queens, in Jackson Heights. Uh-huh. And then I, after a few months, I was like, I didn't come to New York to live in Queens. No. Wait a minute. Get the hell out of here. Hold a second. <laughs> Let me find an apartment. <clears throat> so I found the darkest apartment on the ground floor on the Upper West Side on 107th and Central Park West. Okay. With windows out to an air shaft, um, but it was affordable. Lived there for two years, and then I moved down to Chelsea for about twenty years. Oh wow! And then moved around. Chelsea at that time was Chelsea still has a darkness to it. It does, but then it was it was weird. It was wild. Certain blocks were, of course, I ended up on the one drug block. What block? Seventeenth uh, between eighth and ninth. Yeah, that's a strange. Block. That was cleaned up very late, and it was it had it has a high school on it or an intermediate high school on it, and there was this weird bodega where you know there was some stuff going on, and there were shootings on my block. Yeah, when I, it sounds very romantic. That's pretty I was, scary. <laughs> I, well, it was it was not scary for me because I was super naive. I was I I don't do any drugs or didn't know what a vial of cocaine or what crack looks crack like. Crack was really happening then. Yeah, yeah, crack. I didn't know what any of this looks like. I'm just this little <laughs> naive, you know, boy from a small town, la la la, walking through all of this <laughs> unharmed, thank Later God. I was in- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yodeling my way home. <laughs> Wait, what, so this is 1989, 1990, was Chelsea already like a really happening gay neighborhood or that quite hadn't happened yet? That was in the making, yeah, it was, Make, yeah. yeah, it was, it was happening to a certain degree. Um, now it's completely changed. It seems obviously. like it's it's already maybe going over the over the arc now, up to Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, I think that's yeah. where all the younger gays are now huddling together. <laughs> Don't know why they're planning. <laughs> uh, so, did you appreciate that aspect of Chelsea when you moved to it? Yeah, very much. The reason I moved to Seventeenth Street was because my mentor and dear friend and sort of second mother. Uh, Sheila Jordan lived on 18th Street. Sheila Jordan, yeah, the great. Yes, the great, the fantastically great. You studied with her. Yes, and yeah. she was such a good friend, or still is. Uh, what am I saying? She is yeah. a great friend. Um, and she lived on 18th and 8th, and I lived on 17th and 9th. Oh wow! So we would hang out, you know, constantly. Like, oh, are you free for breakfast? Yeah, I'm coming. Well, how did you establish a relationship with her? Um, I met her in 1988 at a jazz workshop she was giving in Graz, Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still living with my parents, and I saw this little ad, like a t- th- three lines in a, the back of a jazz magazine, that Sheila Jordan was coming to Graz, Austria for a workshop. I hopped on the next train. Fifteen hours later, I was in Graz. I auditioned for her class, and I got in, mm. which was very befuddling to me <laughs> and then i was in graz for three months uh in this uh sort of special intense workshop with yeah. her and we became immediate family like it was yeah. more than friendship it was like recognizing a spirit in each other that 
It was really deep, and it continues. You know, there's yeah. Like I have Thanksgivings with her, and really, yeah, we were very, very close with each other, and I'm also very close with her daughter Tracy. So <clears throat> Sheila was the the person that said, "Why don't you come over to New York?" Because I had gotten a scholarship from Ber the Berkeley School of Music. Oh God, yeah, and and went over there to look at the school and. I liked the school, but I didn't like Boston very much. I, I didn't understand the city and I didn't vibe with it. But New York was the place I wanted to be. And, and was jazz music a part of your life? Yes. Yeah. At that point, I was. And what, know, what were you? What music was special to you? Standards and and bebop. And I started sort of backwards. I started with free jazz and <laughs> improvisatory music, Me listening too. to it. Yeah. And just like being very. Uh, into it, you and you know? heard, listening to that that improvisational music, you heard things that you could do with your voice that made you want to get involved with always. it. Always, I always, I always had this, uh, always had fun making sounds with my voice. Yeah, as a kid, I used to make weird sounds in the car, and my dad would think the car was broken, <laughs> and that was really fun. Yeah, and. I had, you know, radio shows on cassette where I would make all the Foley sounds. and Really? It was really just playful, you know. It wasn't studied or anything. And then in high school, we had a very quirky music teacher who would play, you know, Kagel and Cage oh, wow. and Stockhausen for us. And while all the other students were making fun of what we were listening to, I was so transformed by it. Yeah. It was so liberating to hear Ligeti, you know, Nouvelle Aventure, when you're 15. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was incredible. So, thanks to him, um, sort of my mind was opened up to what music could be and what sounds, vocal sounds could be. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the voice is such <clears throat> a... <sighs> when used effectively, th there's nothing else that is going to punch you in the gut like the voice. Yeah, that, yeah, when used. And that that is, that's up to each individual to decide and to find what their, what their message and what, their, what they're saying to the world or what they want to communicate mm -hmm. is. And I think there's such a, a wide spectrum of how you can communicate in music that is also appealing. Like some of it could be, you know, really mathematical and really... Not cold, but it's like calculated mm -hmm. in a good way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some of it could be wild and energetic and about just energy, mm -hmm. you know, not really about structure. Yeah. And, 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 and. So but on you know, so. the thing with the voice that I, that's always <clears throat> sort of like dumbfounded me, especially uh, in any sort of improvisational um, environment, is you have the choice to use text. Yeah. And that's a whole other... <laughs> that's a whole other ball of amazing. Yeah. You know who's really incredible at that is uh, Shelly Hirsch. Shelly Hirsch, I have to say, she is an improviser. She I mean, is I have, so amazing. The couple of times I've seen her play, it has literally like done something to my thinking that I'm like, <laughs> I, know. I don't know what this is. <laughs> Wait, woman, you just changed my DNA. Stop yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, a true improviser. She's incredible. Another person I worked with who is unbelievable with text, which I am not, is uh, Lynn Book, who is a, not 
performing very much these days. Uh, I, I collaborated with her in the early 90s in Chicago. She used to live in Chicago. And she would just take a text and go to town. Yeah. And that was... That's a certain part of the brain that I have not cultivated. And have, I'm not... Um, but you write lyrics, right? I do. Yeah. But then it's it's within a composition or melody. Right. Um, but taking any text and just going to town and taking that apart and putting it back together in different ways, mm -hmm. that's a special... That's a really special yeah, skill. Because when it's not done... <clears throat> you know, The thing about using words, whether they're your words or someone else's, is yes, there, you know, there's obviously plenty of interpretation available to the person who hears it, but... I mean, you're you're using a shared language that anybody can is gonna you know what I mean? It's yeah. like you're you you can't hide behind you can hide less easily behind vagaries. I agree. It's um, you're creating a new language, and the syntax that you're creating somehow has to make sense, even in an abstract kind of way. Mm -hmm. So you have to. I think what I'm hearing with Shelley, she's done a lot of homework. Like she's done a lot of it. Yeah, and she knows sort of her language. Like she, like any good improviser, she knows where things can go. Yeah, yeah. And I feel safe that she's not just dilly dallying around with you know the word and making some sounds out of it. Right. But she's she knows where she's going with it. And that's that feels really great. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a really codified language yeah. too. Like she's speaking that language so fluently. Yeah. And with such like a poetic, yeah, you know, panache. Hi, Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> but did you so? So you moved to New York and you were studying formally with Sheila. Yeah. So first I was studying at Manhattan School, which at that time didn't have a really great vocal program. It had a great ear training program. Um, <laughs> program. It wasn't a program. It was a class. Um, <laughs> but it was also expensive. I had a, a scholarship, but still it was a big burden. So I switched over to City College where Sheila was teaching mm -hmm. and Ron Carter was um, oh, teaching. Goodness. So it was a great program at the time. And so I went there, finished my degree until I got my green card in 95. And then in 2005, became American. Yeah. That um, took a while. Yeah, 10 years. They, they put you through it. Yeah. I had to take a test, too. <laughs> About? And study, yeah. One that I would probably fail? Yeah, like one I of would those fail tests. it now. <laughs> you just <laughs> memorize 99 so questions. I, <laughs> so stupid. I know, but I, I just... It, uh, I, I, you know, the topic of immigration is so frustrating for me right now. Yeah, let's not. Let's not. Yeah, let's, let's not. not. Um, <clears throat> when you think about that time with Sheila, I, I mean, I feel like I, I know what you're going to say, but I mean, when you, when you think about it, sounds well, you know, you already answered this. Just the hang, the the time spent talking about things perhaps other than music. A lot, yeah. Just being with a person that's as generous and as loving mm -hmm. and as supportive um, in whatever endeavor I, I was choosing was really, really important to me. Mm. My parents were really supportive, but in a more distant way. They, they didn't understand what I was doing. They loved me very deeply. There's no question about that. But they didn't know what I was... like. What's jazz? You know, it was. Yeah. <clears throat> so for me to have Sheila there was very, very nurturing. And the sort of the daily dose of water that you put on a plant, if it needs daily watering, I guess, um, to make, you know, the little seeds that you plant come to life. And she, she provided that. Do you think how cognizant and intentional 
do you think she was or was it just a natural relationship? I think it was not planned yeah. in I'll, any way. I think she she saw what I was doing and some of it even for Sheila was out of her vision and perhaps intentionally so because I needed to find you know something different, you know, not just not just, you know, sing jazz standards and bebop mm-hmm. for me, but find something something of my own and that started with complexity with complex music when it, when when i started out working with kirk nurok who's a, a wonderful composer guitar player right no piano player piano player right piano player and composer who in the 70s uh also worked with jay clayton and did a lot of uh work with amateur singers and amateur choirs and um there was a lot of new music aspects of his in his music and then i st- in 94 i uh was working with in mark dresser's band mm. with dave douglas and oh, denman maroney and all these you know super amazing musicians and the music was hyper complex no question mm-hmm. and that was sort of the world i was drawn into i was really into no words complex atonal wide range compositions that then go into you know crazy sound improvisatory stuff and come back to a certain structure and metric modulations and mm. all this really uh heavy musical uh sort of um what do you call that like biting getting your feet wet or like or like sinking your teeth into something really yummy you know mm. like that that was what i was into was and am still to a certain degree mm-hmm. but that's the only music i wanted to make the and harder you, the better you got immersed into it yes sounds like pretty seamlessly yes i loved it and i worked with composers and i did a lot of contemporary music premieres of young composers that needed a singer that could sing without vibrato and not in a you know operatic tone and so i got a lot of those <clears throat> you know little gigs here and there it was fun yeah a lot of work but fun and you were Playing and hanging out, playing at the and improvising, free improvising, uh, new music improvising, and I, you know, joined Meredith Monk's ensemble at that time too. So there was that also that work, which you know. And I take it you were familiar with her before joining. Yes, yeah, I had actually written a paper on Facing North, which is the piece that I, the, the first piece I sang with Meredith was mm. Facing North. I had written a college paper on <laughs> on, a, on that. Um, yeah. So I I knew Meredith's work and I, I knew Meredith socially before yeah. I, I um, joined the ensemble. She's kind of an enigma. She's a beautiful enigma, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she stands on her own, I think, in many ways because her work encompasses so many aspects. It's not just music it's not only music um it also encompasses you know a spiritual aspect and the aspect of performance live performance theater performance light design yeah costume design film projections there's so many aspects of it and they're all in these performances come together with equal importance so a lighting cue can have as much importance as a piece of music That's a big world. It really is. You know, if you think about, I, 
I've, I've w- often wanted to incorporate these different things into what I do, but I let the idea go pretty quickly when I think about, <laughs> <laughs> even if I'm just thinking about the places I play, I'm like, oh, forget it. I can't you know, pull that kind of thing off there. But, <laughs> but yeah, so, forget it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have this great idea for a balloon coming down. Nah, forget yeah, it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that says something. <laughs> That's our New Yorker cartoon. Oh, New York performance art dies. <laughs> Ah, fuck it. Yeah, fuck I'm it. just going to play. Probably, yeah, it's making the name of my, uh, my autobiography. <laughs> I'd be on your tombstone. <laughs> fuck, it. Oh, fuck it. Here lies the guy who didn't try too hard. <laughs> I just recently did a, a, an, a duo performance, improvisatory performance <clears throat> with Joe Bransiford, the oh. keyboard player. Yeah. And I got it into my... A little peanut head that we have to absolutely have to have to have to have to capital underline bold Helvetica have to have a neon light between us. I just could not perform without this neon light. So we spent hours finding this neon light, bought the freaking neon light, put it there, spent a whole heap of money on it, performed for an hour, and that's the end of that. I hope. The five people that were there enjoyed it. Where was the show? <laughs> At uh, Shapeshifter. Okay. I mean, I hope you get to play again yes. to bring the light. Yes, I hope just for the light. Well, so now you the, you will continue yes. if for no yeah. other reason. Yes. Because of the light. <laughs> is the light doing anything right now or is just a... It's hanging up? out in Joe's studio somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's important. It's. I think it's, yeah, any effort you can make to, uh, to, to uh, break up the monotony of... Just, you know, accepting the status quo of performance spaces, I think, is a good effort. I did a piece with... You can say that again, brother. I did a piece with John Holmbeck, a piece of improvisatory performance where we used all the chairs that were backstage in one of those college auditoriums uh-huh. and just put all of them on stage in like <laughs> big sculptures and it looked like a heap of a mess but it was great and we were yeah. in the middle of it like that kind of stuff which doesn't cost a lot right but it just says okay we're here now and we acknowledge that this is you know it's a different thing than just playing a recital yeah just for the fun of it. But that's, no, that's it. it. It really, like, you know, it's like a focusing in on a lens. So, you know, this is what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And just being um, a, a little incongruous and fun-loving with your environment. Yeah. I think that's something that I bring to the table aside from the musical stuff. But also, yeah, we're in a space. Let's shape it, at least make it a little different for these people that are here now. Yeah. I think when I had my stone residency, I brought in lights also because the lighting at the stone is quite hepatitis y. So, I mean, that's that room is. Oh, it's. I love I it. I love it. Of course, we all love it, but it the lighting cute. for me was an aspect, you know, that could be improved if I bring in my own lights. And I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's a schlep. It's so funny because of the time I've spent around John and the stone. You, you know, aesthetically, well, you know, he, his whole thing with that place is like, it's music. It's not lights. It's not fog machines. You're here to do your music, you know? So it's like really part of his aesthetic with that thing. So when I have these ideas of like, oh, maybe I'll get like a red light or, you know, maybe I'll put some candles up. There's that, I could hear his voice in my head like, hey, man, what are you doing? Get rid of that <laughs> shit. But it really does, you know, it, it can. If, well, 
I'm sorry, John, that I brought my own light. Sorry, sorry. But I think it doesn't necessarily mean that you're hiding something right. if you have different lights. It could also mean that you're underlining or you're emphasizing something uh, different. I agree. You know, it could be... Yeah, it's not like trickery or, um, you know, Broadway or something. Like when right. you said the, the fog, it's not... It's not hiding something under a, a blanket of fog. I mean, there was this band who I was really into for a while, and they're uh, Dillinger Escape Plan. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've no. heard them before. When I first saw them, this was in '99. Um, if you looked at the, they, the guys, looked like me. They're like you know skinny Jewish guys in their twenties. You know, I'm not in my twenties anymore, but <laughs> uh, but they just, they, they looked very unassuming. <clears throat> and you know, they're getting on stage, and all of a sudden. The whole room went dark, and they started playing, and it was intense strobe light, and the music is so loud and so violent, and all the guys in the band, like, if you didn't step back as an audience member, you were going to get hit in the head by one of their guitar stocks. (laughs) And it took me, like, three seconds to go, this is my favorite band. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just like, they use physicality, volume, and light in such a way that, you know, if there was any confusion about, you know, that this music is meant to be menacing, they cleared it up very quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? yeah. And I'm really, I'm, I'm attracted to those performant, uh, performative aspects. I like the Artipovera idea of like taking the smallest means and with the biggest impact, if you can, like finding stuff in the space or right. using industrial, you know, lighting or whatever you can find. I did a piece with Lynn Book, with this spoken word artist that I mentioned earlier, and we used these hanging lights with these metal, you know, cheap metal shades mm-hmm. all over the performance space that were hanging at different lengths. It was a lot of work to rig that up and a lot of, you know, wires and all that stuff. But it sort of had this... <clears throat> Really beautiful effect of different levels of lighting. This was also in the like mid nineties, late nineties, and it was cheap. Mm-hmm. And I like that aspect of you see what you get. You the you know it's here it is. It's very simple, but here is the the idea is clear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not hidden anywhere. It's funny that made me. Th- so this morning I was listening to your record. Um, I dwell in possibility. Mm-hmm. That, that's the name of the record. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just listened. I didn't read any liner notes or, but you know, what I, what I heard, uh, you know, cause it's, it sounded like you're using lots of small objects, mm-hmm. uh, maybe toys and yep. other small sound making devices. The record, the, 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 the sonic presentation of it, the, re, you know, the recording environment, it sounds very pristine. It sounds like a very ideal, uh, recording environment and something that like that, that popped out to me was like to such a small gesture from such a small little piece of plastic in this grand environment sounds utterly gorgeous, mm-hmm. you know? And it to me, that's something I've always been attracted to in music is to take the smallest fragment of idea or, or intention and really put it under a microscope and, and see where the emotion is around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something I learned, among many other things, from Meredith is also the context of how you present something could elevate... You know, a, a, a ninety-nine cent toy store sound maker to actual music, and it's not a gimmick. It's not like you're using it ironically, or you know, it's re- you're really actually using it for what it is. Mm-hmm. The record was recorded in a monastery uh, in Switzerland, and we recorded each piece in a different place of the church. Mm-hmm. So the reverb. <clears throat> 
and the bounce back from uh, from the church was different in each place. And that was really interesting. So Stefan Winter, the producer, had hung microphones all over the church. And then <clears throat> I was traveling, you know, for the vocal solo pieces. I was <clears throat> in the middle of the church for, you know, the vastest reverb or for some pieces... I was in where the altar was or near, you know, on, on top where the organ was. So there was playing with that aspect of the room mm -hmm. and then also using the simplest, really cheapest toys that I had collected over, you know, maybe 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Not haphazardly really written the material for those sure. toys so now those toys are really really precious because you cannot <laughs> replace them and they break so easily yeah it's not a fender stratocaster no. <laughs> it's not a loop that you can you know buy again on Sweetwater or something right so wait, are you are you sort of do you always have your eye open for like oh that's a cool not anymore so much i sort of feel that's i've done that yeah that's past yeah i got i mean listening to that record it it reminded me, a lot of it reminded me of, and I don't know when this happened, and a couple of people that know me were like, are you okay? Uh, I, I've gotten really into Catholic music, specifically uh -huh. like Gregorian chants, <clears throat> and um, there's this one recording from the 60s, the, the Benedictine monks of the chapel of, I want to say St. I don't know this, I mean, I, don't, I, I know nothing of this world, <laughs> but, the, but musically, mm -hmm. it's just the, the cleanest, most pristine I mean, I I feel completely bared open when I listen, and I I heard a lot of that in that music. I heard something. There's some the human voice in that environment. Yeah, I mean, I'm so drawn to that sound. It's obvious. I I love it, um, and I grew up with it. I'm you know I grew up in in, in a Catholic school. I grew up as an altar boy. Mm -hmm. It was everywhere, um, and I I sang it as a kid. You know yeah. a lot. So. I love it. I love the sound of it. I love Hildegard von Bingen and yeah. all the Gregorian earlier stuff um, so, so much. I don't specifically put it in my music, you know, in a theoretical way. It just sure. comes in. I mean, I it, it's weird. You know, I'm, I'm a lifelong atheist, uh, <laughs> but there's something in in that you know it's a, a lot of to me I, in my mind a lot of that music works so well because there's just sort of eternal truths in it. I'm not talking about the... This is when I take the, the water from the my glass and sprinkle it on you. <laughs> but, I mean, I hear, I hear a communication with something higher in the same way I hear it in a Coltrane solo, the same way I hear it in a Bach cello suite. I hear, like, a very quick sort of relationship with, you know... It is amazing, though, that Bach, who I love and worship to no end, was really believing. I'm an atheist, too. It is unbelievable. Oh, same thing with Coltrane. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes me stop and think. It is incredible. It is, I think we have maybe, maybe not, maybe with Arvo Paird perhaps, but we have maybe surpassed the time when um, religious music isn't cheesy. I mean, it didn't used to be. Right. But now I feel religious music usually is not what I would normally want to listen to. <laughs> but if I... <laughs> but maybe then in, you know, 
200 years were like, wow, Christian rock is awesome. That's beautiful. I don't think that'll ever happen. No, okay. no that's <laughs> garbage. It, it was garbage before it was made. Aw, <laughs> sorry, Amy Grant. I don't know who that is, but... <laughs> so, I don't so, <clears throat> but here's the thing, and this is a challenge that that John Zorn presented to me that I was like, fuck, you know? Uh, he was like, uh, we were talking about this some kind of stuff and I, I declared myself an atheist to him and he said well let me ask you this if you're putting a band together do you want to do you want your band to be a bunch of atheists or a bunch of believers and I was like huh, believers you're right I mean I want I do want on, on some level and maybe I just need to draw the conversation out for myself like I want to be around people who have a vision and who believe who have that that bit that kind of fervor I like people that are conflicted about it. Yeah. I think people that, as I am, I mean, I grew up with religion and I would, I declared myself an atheist, which kind of feels weird. And I'm just looking around to see if there's no objects falling on me. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I'm also conflicted about it. And I also feel that um, people that are, that have the answer to anything are a little bit suspect to me, whether it's totally. atheism or religion. So I, I think it's up for grabs. I, I think there's nothing after this. I feel, you know, you're going to close your eyes and then you're going to see a light and that's it, goodbye, whatever. Right. Um, but that, you know, and then we're in this big discussion that will never end. But I think if you have the answer either way, I, you wouldn't be in my band. I want you to have at least a little bit of a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather be around people who have a lot of questions than a lot of answers. Yeah, who, who have an, you have sort of, you know, yeah, I've made up my mind, but also maybe not. Yeah. You know, I play with a lot of musicians that are believers and that, you know, pray and all that. It's I have no problem with that. That's not an issue for me at all. Right. I think it's... No, that doesn't make make me. But the people that are fervent about one or the other are suspect. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I definitely agree. I would say that quite often uh, devout atheists are far more irritating than devout. <laughs> I mean, Christopher Hitchens is a great read, but he was a weird dude. Yeah, like he was a, not a nice dude. Yeah, he would not be in my band. Right. He would, he's on my bookshelf, but he's not in my band. Right. <laughs> right. It, it, yeah, it, it, can be, it can be a little exhausting to be around people that are just so certain of things. Mm-hmm. It can be exhausting to be around. I, I feel like in my life, you know, I, and I don't, I mean, maybe we don't have to talk about this, but I, I, I've, you know, I've done, I've done a good bit of reading uh, about anti-Semitism, and I've sort of, you know, something I think about a lot and from all different angles. Um and certainly, you know, the idea of, of the Jew being this person that's always questioning things has gotten him into trouble in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that uh, there's something very irritating to culture at large about people that has questions. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's, I think as an artist, you have to, well you have to constantly insert mystery where there isn't any. Yeah. And I think if you have the answers to everything, there's no mystery. But that's really, you know, at, at its core, I think a lot of that's what improvisation is. And, you know, we've all had that moment where, like, it could be on stage, it could be in the practice room, 
you finish a piece with some people that was freely improvised and everyone kind of looks at each other just like what was that like just mm -hmm. in complete awe of what just happened you know and for me that's what i live for me too but then did the audience feel that too did we have a moment or did we all have a moment yeah that's the, my number one question um and then for me improvisation is really hinging on the people that I'm with. And this is a question that for you also, like, do you improvise better with new people or better with the same people or a mixture thereof? And if it's the same people, do you think that you're actually improvising or do you think you're repeating something that you've already done? Well, I prefer the musical process and, and product from people who I have a longstanding relationship with that continues to evolve. And within that, I would say I, that's where I feel like my tendencies to, as a composer and my tendencies as an improviser kind of congeal most naturally where the music that I feel most strongly about happens. And it's, I can play with someone for the first time um, and in the moment sort of record what, what I enjoy about it when I don't, and then say, you know what, that was, Yeah, that was a first time performance, but there's something there, and we should do that again. Mm -hmm. I, you know, people like Derek Bailey, mm -hmm. who had this really sort of strong, like, aesthetic idea about play with new people all the time, play That's with from, yeah. people from every walk of life. In a way, and maybe I'll get shot for saying this by some improviser, I feel like, in a way, a lot of those documents, those recorded documents, don't feel very improvisational because he's just doing his thing. Mm -hmm. I love it as a listener. Yeah. You know, he made that record with the Ruins. Yeah. It could have been with any band, in my opinion. Right. I mean, improvisation has so many aspects to it and has, um, like, what does that mean? Like, you're improvising, are you trying to create a com compositional structure together or are you on your own and then at the end it comes together? Like, let's say you're making a recording. Like sometimes you, well, I'm trying to, I'm blab, I'm, I'm, I have too much coffee and that was good coffee, by the way. Um, there's so many ways to improvise. That's what mm -hmm. I'm trying to say. And finding the right people for me is a big key to being really fulfilled improvising because it can also be really frustrating mm -hmm. and really boring actually to mm -hmm. me to improvise with people. And if, Like, let's say, if I'm improvising with Joe Branciford, mm -hmm. I immerse myself so deeply that I lose myself in it, which is a great feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think the music at times is really transformative. Um, and sometimes I'm improvising with, let's say, John Holmbeck, and I'm really considering compositional elements differently than I would with Joe. And so there's a different part of my brain that's working uh, differently when I'm improvising with different people. And that is, I think for me, is a big part of who I'm, who am I playing with? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes it doesn't work. Some people you don't click with and you don't, you're on different planets. I, it took me a long time <laughs> to stop beating myself up over that. And a big moment for me was about five years ago. So thank, I, I, so thankful I have this. One of my heroes, who is a lifelong improviser, hired me to record his performances with another hero of improvisation. 
And I can tell you objectively that the music was not good. They did three sets. I recorded all of them, and I have them, and I listen to them. They're not available anywhere. I have them. <laughs> and I, I listen to them, and I listen. I'm like, this is improvisation not working. And these guys are absolute masters of their craft who have been doing it for decades and decades and decades. Mm-hmm. And it just gave me such like a feeling of like being off the hook, you know? If a music, if I took place in a, uh, an improvisational performance and it was a drag, of course it was 100% my fault. Of course I wasn't being present for the music. Of course I didn't have the chops to keep up with that person. Of course I led it down a bad path or something, you know? Yeah, and I think that there's some, there's a, a way of improv, improvising where you stick to your guns and you, f- not force, but you establish yourself as a voice in this cacophony or whatever it is or in this ball of music or sound and there's another way where you melt together and you become sort of one and you don't even know where one ends and the other one begins that's sort of where i do you find yourself i i always have often have like annoying questions pinging at me while i'm playing you yeah know, like, oh man am i am i creating like am i dragging this out for too long am i you know does this person want to play quietly or we you know <laughs> do, should we, do we need to shift to an, a new idea and it drives me crazy i same here and i think that's when i'm not really listening mm-hmm. enough and and I, my best experiences were um no the best moments when i listened back were always too short because i was thinking what you were just saying mm-hmm. am i dragging this out am i dragging this out but it should have been dragged out much longer mm-hmm. and it's usually in the transitions where this stuff happens and so i've i'm slowly learning to not to shut those voices down a little bit and let that happen and and lean into that and trust that it's enough and that what's happening right now can stay where it's at mm-hmm. and then wait for it to lead to another place. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's so true. And I was talking to someone, uh, recently, who was it? They, 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 you know, they told me we we're talking about something kind of similar is to just remind yourself that, you know, you might have this idea or this thing that, you know, the sound and you know, it inside and out. Um, so you might go through the idea very quickly. The audience member has not spent, the grueling hours that you have in your head yeah let them experience it perhaps you know a little stretched out you know give them time to figure it out and mm-hmm. in doing so you know one of the uh mind changing performances that i saw here in new york when i first moved here was uh john cage's atlas ecliptocalis at carnegie hall mm-hmm. which is a two-hour concert with a full orchestra and the full or- the orchestra sits on stage <laughs> And all you hear is bleak for two hours. For two hours. The first hour you were crawling out of your skin for something to happen. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh please somebody just play something loud and big and ah, just go for it. I've been going out of my And then I just something just like fell off me and it was it was an incredible experience. I can only describe it as 
if you were looking into, you know, a cell and seeing the DNA or something. It was so incredible. But it took that first hour. You have to trust that. Like, I, I'm learning that a lot through film right now because I'm watching so many movies. And have you ever seen the film Straw Dogs by Sam Peckinpah? No. Hands down one of the best movies I've ever seen. I just saw it for the first time maybe six months ago. Is it as good as Legally Blonde 2? It's not quite Legally Blonde 2. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's this film and, you know... It's it's you know it takes place in England and so except for Dustin Hoffman you know it's one of his first films. Everyone is speaking with a pretty thick English accent. I kind of had like stop and rewind it a couple times, and the first like fifty minutes of the film, I was kind of bored out of my mind. I had no idea what was going on, and then there's a scene like a really intense scene, and for the next hour you realize how crucial every frame of that first fifty minutes was because it is now amplifying everything that is happening. And it's just like, it, I mean, it's an amazing film yeah, on its own, but yeah. that, it was such a reminder to me that like sometimes, you know, you got to play the long game and you set things up for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a hard, that's a, that's a mature way. I mean, I have, you know, patience is not one of my biggest <laughs> virtues, but when that happens, it's Im- immensely uh, satisfying for me when yeah. I see a performance. I, I think unterrestic Kersmarker's dances are like that Um, she's done a lot of work with Steve Reich's music they collaborated a lot and you see these you know very minimal movements and then they they sort of come together or it it just blossoms in the 40th minute or suddenly it just and that's so so satisfying to me that's Mm -hmm. something I, I want more of and want to be able to do more of and trusting that and leaning into that that's happening and shaping that moment rather than working on the next moment that could be better Mm -hmm. while you're in this moment is not always the best way to improvise it's not rather it's absolutely not surrendering to this and saying okay i'm in this messy place here we are (laughs) perfect tie in to the beginning we're in this messy house but actually let's put on a pillow you know put a pillow here and put a pillow there and we're going to be very comfortable yeah when as you you know when you think about from the first moment you stepped in new york in 1989 up until now how have you heard your work mature I don't know if it's maturing, but it's changed. Yeah. It's changed from being hyper complex and looking for, you know, um, that kind of edge to a softening. Yeah. To uh, song forms, to uh, singing lyrics, writing lyrics, writing song forms with lyrics, which I didn't do before. Yeah. <clears throat> writing more music being commissioned to write music for other ensembles mm-hmm. and other uh, singers. So that changes, you know, how you how you hear music as well. Yeah. I I just have these moments where I'll listen to some like I'll listen to old recordings, whether it's from a you know, a concert from a thousand years <clears> ago <throat> or my the very beginning of my recorded output. Um, you know, and it's I cringe. I, I can I it you know, it's I can barely stand listening to it. Oh, just you wait ten more years. And You're not going to cringe. You're like, oh my god, I did that. Yeah, well, that's amazing. Well, so, well, but now what I'm thinking about now is like, well, I wonder what that person who made that music, if they listen to what I'm up to now, what they would have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's good or cringe worthy, at some point, is not even the. I just ha- I have two pictures um, 
at home of myself when I was in grammar school. And I look at those pictures and I, I go, who is that person? It makes me sad when that happens. No, it's it's sweet. Well, really? It's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. a little sad. I mean, I feel sad. I looked. I was looking through some photos the other day that um, uh, that my mom had sent to me. There are very few childhood photos of me, and I was looking at these pictures, and I felt really bad for that kid. I felt sad. I saw like a sad child. Oh, no, 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 no. Can I hug you? <laughs> but it's it, it it is like I. It's tricky for me when I when I check back with old stuff. You know, generally what I hear or what I feel the need to hear is like a sense of forgiveness for that person. Like it's just like this person. Oh, I'm going to cry now. <laughs> Push the pause button. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like I I feel sympathy for for the old recordings in a way. I feel when I listen back to my first recordings, which some of them I feel cringy uh, about in some ways. I feel wow, I did that, and yeah. I did it in the best way I possible at the time you could i could do it better now perhaps sure you know but wow i was there was some there's a spirit in there and there is a certain sense of going for it in there there's determination yeah good for you yeah you're right (laughs) here's a medal just for participating yeah you know i don't know it just feels less i i beat myself up a little less than i used to but you know that's really something is to to look back at that young person and look at the challenge they set for themselves. You know, they set the bar as high as they knew it could be set for yourself. Hopefully, yeah. you yeah. know, and 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 they did it. Yeah, that changes from day to day too. You know, some days it's like, "Oh fuck, I should have done this differently. I wish this, you know, would die. This would never come out or would yeah. be lost in ether." And then other days you're like, oh, it's not so bad. This is really good. Oh my God, I rule on this one. Right. And then it goes back up, up and down. You know? Yeah. This has been a good conversation, Theo. Yeah. Thank you so much for thank having you me. Thank you for coming over, man. Yeah. Sweet. Thanks for the coffee. <laughs> All right. I hope you enjoyed that. That was Theo Blackman. I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, I think you could tell. I think you can tell when I'm having a good time talking to people. And that was certainly one of those. Go to TheoBleckman.com. Check in with his world. It's very uh, unique, interesting, and colorful world. Uh, and it, it rewards your attention. TheoBleckman.com. Go to 5049records.com. Check out uh, some past episodes. Uh, maybe check out some music. This Sunday, if you're around, I'm going to be playing the last ever show at The Stone. Uh, the Stone at Avenue C, that is. Uh, so that'll, that'll be a fun night of music. It'll be me and Zorn and a bunch of others. Come on down. That's it. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.